Welcome to the Authentically American Podcast, featuring inspiring stories from great Americans who are making a difference. Your host is West Point grad, former Army Ranger, and founder of Authentically American, Dean Wagner. Welcome to the Authentically American Podcast. I'm your host, Dean Wagner, and today I'm excited to be joined by my longtime friend, mentor, and great American, Bob McDonald. Bob is the former chairman and CEO of Procter & Gamble. He also served as the 8th U.S. Secretary of Veteran Affairs. Bob is also a fellow West Point grad who served his country in the U.S. Army for five years. Bob's story is an inspiring one filled with timeless leadership lessons that you won't want to miss. Bob, I have to tell you, it is an honor to call you a friend, and I'm so thankful that you have made a decision to invest the time this morning with us on the Authentically American podcast. Well, I'm glad to be here with you, Dean, and I'm, I'm proud of you, and I'm proud of what you've done with Authentically American. Well, I appreciate it, and I really want to talk about you, Bob, and your story, because it's an inspiring one, and we are now starting on year two with our podcast, and we've had two guests every month, and it's amazing as we look back over the history, how much of these great stories, these inspiring stories have started very early in their lives. So I don't know as much about your early childhood and your upbringing. So tell me a little bit about what life was like growing up for you. Well, I was born in Gary, Indiana. In fact, the, the house I was born in uh, sat uh, on West 2nd Avenue, which was parallel to the Calumet River, which was parallel to the U.S. steel plant, the largest uh, still the largest steel plant in U.S. Steel's uh, inventory. And uh, everyone in Gary, Indiana, uh, worked in the mill. Uh, my dad uh, worked briefly in the mill when he came back from uh, the occupation forces in Japan in World War II. But then he quickly realized he'd use his GI Bill to get a uh, college education. He went to Butler University in Indianapolis and then worked in Chicago in marketing. But uh, it was it was a great honor for me, and you know how life sometimes goes in circles. It was a great honor for me later to be a member of the U.S. Steel Corporate Board oh, wow. and to return to Gary and tour the sheet and tin mill where he actually worked that summer before going to college. Uh, life tends to go in full circles sometimes. It really does, Bob, and it's not surprising knowing you and how committed you are to living a life that's value-centric and knowing that you grew right up there in the Midwest. Yeah, and I had a great childhood. I mean, you know, we, we, we weren't wealthy by any means, um, but my mom and dad worked hard. And uh, But the most important gift they gave to me um, certainly wasn't money, but it was the values. Uh, it was uh, going to church every Sunday. It was um, uh, knowing that integrity was the most important thing. Uh, it was uh, when I was a Boy Scout or Cub Scout, my mom was the den mother, my dad was the scoutmaster, my dad was our little league coach, uh, my grandparents lived around the corner there in Gary. Uh, it was just a really good uh, Midwestern American uh, upbringing. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm receiving an award in April called the Horatio Alger uh, Award. And um, I, I talk about I talk about the fact that I really didn't face much adversity growing up, at least in this economical sense. Um, we really didn't feel like we were poor. We didn't feel like um, we had any disadvantage. 
but the thing that was most important was my parents giving me those values, in my opinion. Well, Bob, I never had the privilege of meeting your parents, but so much of you and what I've come to know about you is easy to now see back and the impact your parents had on you. Thank you. Well, they're, they're, I'm blessed that they're both still living. They're in Indianapolis. Oh, wow. um, they're not as mobile as they once were, but um, I'm very proud of them and love them very much. Well, Bob, I wish I would have known they were in Indianapolis last fall because I was there for a Made in USA conference right there in Indianapolis. It's a great place to have it, right in the heartbeat of the country. No doubt about it. So, you know, continuing the theme on values, because another common connection you, ha you and I have is attending West Point. And was that something right. that was always on your radar, or how did that come to be? Well, I, I uh, first applied to go to West Point when I was in sixth grade. Um, I, I, I knew, obviously, I wouldn't qualify <laughs> then, but... Uh, but uh, I, I knew it was something I was wanted to do. I can remember on Saturday mornings getting up at, at 6 a.m. Well, actually before 6 a.m. Because at 6 a.m. was a program on television called The Big Army. And I don't recall what channel it was on. But every week they would show what was going on in the Army, uh, the beginning of the Vietnam conflict and then, and then Vietnam. And I remember watching that show and playing with my soldiers and thinking that this is something I wanted to do. I wrote to my congressman, as I said, when I was 11 years old, sixth grade, and I was very fortunate to have a congressman who um, encouraged me to continue to apply, take his tests uh, every year, uh, saying he would take my best score, uh, build up my file, uh, and of course apply to the academy at the same time. And um, that congressman was Don Rumsfeld. And oh, wow. um, I've always been thankful to Secretary Rumsfeld for uh, not discouraging a young person, but rather encouraging them and, 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 and you know, feeding the fire that, that contributed to that goal. And um, uh, Don ended up going to work in the White House for President Ford the year I was um, nominated. And so I was actually nominated by Phil Crane. But, uh, but I'm, every time I've seen Secretary Rumsfeld, I've thanked him um, for, for encouraging that young person, that young one. And I've tried to live up to that role model. You know, how can I encourage young people to have a dream, achieve their dream, and enable them to help uh, achieve their dream? Well, Bob, I, I love to hear that story because that's a tribute to your tenacity here in sixth grade. You're applying for the first time and equally a tribute to Donald Rumsfeld because I've got friends who are in Congress and knowing how busy their schedules are and to think that he was willing to invest that time to a middle school aged child at that point. Yeah, and, I, and that's why I say I've thanked him every time I, I've yeah. seen him. Obviously, it wasn't linear. You know, I had, um, I can remember I had a guidance counselor in high school who told me I had no hope of getting into West Point because I wasn't politically connected. And of course, we weren't. Right. Uh, my parents didn't have the money to donate to political campaigns. Uh, but I can remember going home and, and nearly being in tears and saying to my mom and dad, um, you know, my guidance counselors told me I can't get in. I'm not politically connected. And my mom and dad said, well, let's figure out where uh, Congressman Rumsfeld will be next time he comes to our neighborhood and let's go visit. And uh, I don't know if they made a donation or not. We, as I say, we didn't have a lot of money to donate. 
But we did go to an event, and I can remember going up to him and introducing myself. Um, I don't think it made any difference, okay. but, uh, but uh, you know, it was trying to overcome uh, the adversity the guidance counselor gave to me. And Bob, does that guidance counselor know the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say? I don't, that's a good question, Dean. I don't know. I um, obviously wasn't a big advocate for her. Um, I didn't, you know. <laughs> If, 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 if you came to me with a dream that was, uh, in my mind, unachievable, the last thing I'm going to do is tell you it's unachievable. I'm going to help you achieve it. Lessons on what not to say to your students. Well, and of course, that's what uh -huh. you see in life. I mean, we're all students of leadership. You are. Uh -huh. uh, I am. And, and we see what's uh, good leadership and what's bad leadership. And we try to replicate what's good. Absolutely. I know, Bob, you... You ended up you know, serving in the 82nd and had an amazing five years in the Army. And, you know, we've talked a little bit with some of our podcast guests who've had a military background, the transition from the military into the corporate business environment. And some people make it seem easy. Others are challenged. So tell me about your transition. Well, I was challenged. I mean, <laughs> in the days that uh, in the days I transitioned, which was 1979, um, it was difficult. There, there weren't many um, uh, people or organizations to help you. And in reality, uh, the minute you decided you were leaving the service, you were kind of an outcast. Um, and so it was difficult. I, um, I wrote letters to about 130 companies. I interviewed at about 30 companies. I had an engineering undergraduate degree. I had an MBA. Wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Didn't know anything about uh, the civilian world, other than what my um, what I learned gleaned from my father's career, um, and um, and and during those interviews, ended up collecting a lot of data. And I, as you know, I joined the Procter and Gamble company, and what impressed me the most about that company was the purpose, uh, improving the lives of the world's consumers, and the values which I found the people I met. Um, lived every day and, and but it was my lowest salary offer and my lowest uh, position of authority in other words I started an entry level right uh, even though I was a, a captain in the army and had uh, done everything like uh, taking a battalion of troops up to um, Alaska for training in the Arctic Circle so it was a bit of a shock uh, when I got to Procter & Gamble I remember similar shock and having so much responsibility and leadership and then being put into an entry role. And it's interesting because you started as an ABM, an assistant brand manager, and 29 years later, you were appointed the CEO of Procter & Gamble. So I don't know if you ever counted the number of promotions all the way, but obviously, you know, it, it was a great fit for you and you delivered breakthrough results. So talked about some of the keys of your career that made it so successful for you there at P&G. Well, I, I never really, um, as, I, as I remember, I can never really articulate an aspiration to be CEO. I can, I can only an articulate an aspiration to do the job well and continue to um, take on additional responsibility. And, and again, uh, just like life's not linear, as we talked earlier, this was not linear. Uh, I can remember the very first day I, w I went to Procter and Gamble, and I said to my brain manager, who had graduated from uh, Denison College in Ohio, and 
um, you know, was much younger than me, at least five years younger than me. Uh, I remember saying, well, where is the manual that tells you how to organize the files in your desk? Because, of course, in the Army, we had a manual <laughs> that told you how to organize your files so that as you moved from Army location to Army location, you could take over someone's desk and know how it was organized. Yeah. And, of course, he laughed at me and said, you know, we don't, we don't <laughs> work do that. that way here. Um, I can remember in 1980. Eight, when uh, the leadership of the company came to me and said, uh, we would like you to move with your family to Toronto, Canada, I said, well, what did I do wrong? Uh, in those days, if you weren't in the succession plan of your home organization, you weren't as highly rated as someone who was. And so I'm thinking, well, gosh, if I'm not in the succession plan of my organization here in Cincinnati, I must have done something wrong. And that was when the leadership said, well, no, we... we we're globalizing the business, and um, we need a, a cadre of managers who have experience outside the U.S. When, when I joined the business in 1980, when I joined the company in 1980, um, gee, less than a third of our business was outside the United States, uh, measured by sales. Mm -hmm. And when I uh, retired as CEO in 2013, uh, two-thirds of our business was outside wow. the United States. So it was a, a, a massive change. But, you know, Deanne and I thought, okay, we'll move to Canada. Uh, we'll try it out for three years, and we'll move back to Cincinnati. Well, then as, as we finished our time in Canada, leadership of the company came to me and said, well, we'd like you to move to Manila in the Philippines. And again, I said, well, what did I do wrong? <laughs> Thinking that you thought you were being deported. And uh, I'll never forget the discussion I had with John Pepper, who was my first year on manager when I was hired and is a dear, dear friend. Uh, I, had, I had filled out this form that said, uh, I'll go anywhere, but I don't want to go anywhere where it's unsafe for my family yeah. or where the education of my children is at risk. And uh, John said, well, don't worry. Uh, Manila is a safe place. We have hired guards for your house. We've got personal <laughs> bodyguards for you. And I thought, oh, my goodness. Uh, but it was a great opportunity. Oh, yeah. I got to manage our Philippine subsidiary, which is one of the oldest uh, in P&G. It's, and it's one of the most autonomous, which was really the benefit of that assignment. And then, uh, and then Mount Pinatubo exploded. And I had trouble getting there, actually lived on the floor of the Hong Kong airport for four days uh, waiting to get to Manila for my first assignment. Um, and then in 1995, uh, thinking I'd go back to Cincinnati again, the company came to me and said, no, we'd like you to move to Japan. And the Kobe earthquake had just happened. And I thought to myself, gosh, I, if you're at Procter & Gamble, you want to know where McDonald's going next and make sure you're not there because it seemed like uh, – crises preceded me right so i went to went to japan i spent six years there and our children went to uh, we have a boy and a girl they went to middle school and in high school in japan and that was a really formative assignment it was formative okay. because the japanese people are so innovative and uh, also because the japanese people tend to be somewhat homogenous as a group of consumers and, and they move very quickly into new items. We introduced a new dishwashing liquid about 1995-96. It was the technology that's in Dawn uh, in the United States. 
and we took market leadership in a matter of weeks. And wow. uh, I, you know, you would never do that in the United States, but wow. it it gave you a real appreciation for uh, for innovation, which has always stuck with me. Um, I don't know if you want me to continue, but from what? Japan, we then went to Brussels, Belgium. Uh, where I ran our global fabric and home care business. We lived there for three years. It was fabulous. Um, that was a, a great assignment. We lived in the heart of Europe and uh, many lessons there. But one certain lesson is we lived near Waterloo. And uh, Waterloo, of course, was Napoleon's uh, tremendous defeat at the end of his career. And, uh, but everybody in Waterloo speaks French. So I kind of I, I kind of I, I speak French as well. I kind of felt like, well, gee, maybe Napoleon lost the battle but won the war. Uh, so a lot of different lessons all over. From Brussels, we came back to Cincinnati. Well, Bob, I knew there was a lot of international experience, but I had no idea the depth and breadth of your global well, half, experience. Half of my career was spent yeah. uh, uh, overseas. And uh, while all of it was tip was unplanned, and I think that's the lesson, you can't really plan your career. Um, obviously, those international assignments led to uh, being able to um, prepare myself to be CEO and chairman. Had I not had those international assignments, it wouldn't happen. But but it's ironic how things change because to go internationally in 1989, the company had to pay a premium. Oh, yeah. Nowadays, we have people wanting to join the company to go internationally. It's a very different situation. Oh, yeah. It's crazy to hear the stats that you quoted on where the business was globally as a percentage to where it is today. And you were oh, it's, it's remarkable. I'll give you some more, more numbers <laughs> that they kind of blow you away. So in 1980, we had uh, uh, $10 billion in sales. In 19, uh, uh, I'm sorry, in 2013, we had $85 billion in wow. sales, so an eight and a half times multiple. Uh, the multiple wow. on profit was basically $1 billion to $10 billion, so a 10 times multiple. The employee count was basically 60,000 to 120,000, two times multiple. And the stock price, which is really the interesting multiple, was $2.33 to $81 which is obviously the biggest multiple on the page, which goes to show you if you increase sales eight and a half times, if you increase profit 10 times, if you only double employees, meaning your productivity right. is improved, you know, eight to, eight to two or four times on sales, your stock price is gonna go up 20, 25 times. That's an MBA capstone lesson right there. You don't well, need two I, I years. Teach, just yeah. I, I teach at uh, Harvard Business School every every um, every winter in December. Normally, the case study that's taught there is the case study that was done on my leadership of the VA. But I always bring that business leadership experience yeah. in as well. Well, Bob, I'm curious one side story because I know family and your wife and kids are so important to you. I'm just curious the reaction of your wife when you said, "Honey." I've got this great opportunity in Manila. We're going to live in a compound. Arm oh, God, what was her reaction? Well, as you can imagine, it was it was shock. Um, in fact, um, you know, I, I, I to be honest with you, I mean, my wife and I prayed a lot. We we cried a lot, uh, trying to figure out if every one of these assignments—Toronto, um, Manila, 
Kobe, we're good for our family, yeah. good for our children, and and good for our parents because as parents we knew yeah. uh, how much your parents miss you. And of course, every year we pay for our parents to come over and visit us. Oftentimes, they would stay with the children. Uh, these were important things to us. Um, her reaction uh, was uh, the same as mine, which was, you know, we really, really prayed about it. And um, as we look back now, we wouldn't change anything. But but importantly, we didn't plan it. So, right. I mean, my, my lesson to um, the MBA students I talk to or the business people I talk to tell me, you know, I want to be a CEO. Tell me how to plan my career to be a CEO. I, I kind of tell them, if your goal is to be a CEO, uh, you're probably not going to get it. And the reason is your goal is wrong. It's, it's focusing on a title or a position or a salary. Your goal needs to be about how you're serving others. And, um, and because there are going to be too many fits and starts along the way. I mean, yeah. with P&G people, I would say, don't ever sell yourself short by having your goal being a position with the company because by the time you're ready for that position, we'll have reorganized the company and the position won't exist. Great, great coaching and advice. And it's interesting, Bob, as I knew you and I were going to have this podcast schedule, I started to reflect and think back of the six years that I was at Procter & Gamble and some of the things I took away and learned from you. And one of them was accessibility. And I don't think I ever told you this story, but this was 30 days in, in 2002, to my having started at Procter & Gamble. And you know, right. my, my manager said, Dean, do you know Bob McDonald? And I said, Bob who? I mean, I was 30 days in and didn't know Bob. And he said, well, Dean, you need you to get to know. You should know me at that point. <laughs> and he said, you need to get to know Bob. He is a West Point alum. He is our global president of fabric and home care. You need to meet him. And you know, two months later, I had a training trip, was coming into Cincinnati. And I said, you know what? Let me call Bob. And I had rehearsed how I was going to get past two or three administrators to get to you. And I called you and the very first ring you picked up. And I was in shock that, wait a second, this is Bob. And you're answering the phone. And that was just a lesson. I know I've seen other examples throughout your career. So tell me about accessibility and why that's been so important to you. Well, as you, as you know, um you know, Dean, I don't know the audience knows, but as you know, I'm, I'm a, a Christian. Mm -hmm. And um, when you think about accessibility, accessibility to God uh, through Jesus Christ is mm -hmm. the ultimate accessibility. And I, I think that's a great leadership lesson. Uh, the greatest leaders I know are accessible. And um, I always tried to be accessible. I always answer my own phone. I always answer my own email. Uh, because I wanted the truth. I wanted, I wanted to develop a relationship. And truth, truth comes through intimacy, and, and intimacy comes through relationship. And you can't build that intimacy if you've got barriers uh, to your accessibility. And, and this became uh, incredibly important as I moved around the world. If I didn't learn that foreign language of the location I was going to, I had no hope of creating intimacy with the consumers I was trying to serve or with the people that I was working with. I had to learn the language. I had to learn the culture. In Canada, that meant I had to play ice hockey. I mean, I, I, I played on Love the, that. I was the only American on the, uh, the intercompany hockey team. Uh, but I had to be, you know, ice hockey is so much part of the culture, I had All to right. do it. I had to 
go out on a banca boat in the Philippines. I had to go to the farthest islands. In Japan, I had to speak Japanese and give speeches in Japanese. Intimacy is what creates relationships and is what creates trust, and you, and you have to do that. And further, it's, it's, a, it's a sign of respect. Um, if you send me an email in the middle of the night and you need something, um, do I respect you enough to respond to it as quickly as I can? Um, and, and I think being on time, uh, responding to people's needs, uh, showing people respect is incredibly important. This, this was um, really important when I got to the VA. I mean, the VA was in crisis. The sec previous secretary had just resigned. We had employees who had been cooking the books in Phoenix and uh, lying about appointments they weren't giving to veterans. And I needed the truth. And the only way to get the truth is to knock down the hierarchy. And, and basically, I eliminated the hierarchy. Uh, I wanted people to call me Bob. I gave out my, my phone number nationally at a press conference. And the Washington <laughs> Post did me a favor by publicizing it. Right. Um, I got rid of all the, the tent cards on tables for meetings. I eliminated the number of people in meetings. And I traveled constantly. I went on. Uh, would average to be almost, uh, you know, uh, a trip a week, uh, getting to know veterans, getting to know veteran service organizations. It's the only way you understand what's going on, and, and you have to understand what's going on before you can put together a plan to, um, to transform the organization. Well, Bob, that is such a great reinforcement as leaders, because so often they start to put barriers the higher they get, and you have taken the exact opposite approach, and it's one I've tried to role model myself. And you started to touch on another one of the key takeaways, which is even more impressive when accessibility and responsiveness go together. Because I've shared with my wife, Kelly, I've shared with my team that, you know what, I need to be very intentional, no matter whether it's the you know, biggest customer of ours and the CEO or the lowest ranking person at one of our customers, I need to be timely and responsiveness. And I am still blown away to this date if I send you a note with a question or something, Bob, it seems like minutes go by before you get to go. Well, as I say, it's it's a matter of respect, and respect is an important value. You you know, and um, we are all here uh, for a reason. We're all special. Mm -hmm. um, everyone is valued. Uh, I believe in inclusiveness, as you do. I know. Right. I believe in the the power of diversity, which leads to better innovation, and. Um, these things are just just inviolate. You you yeah. you you've got to do them. Um, and I, you know, I when my organizational model I used at the VA, and it's actually in this Harvard case study that was done on my tenure there, is an upside down pyramid. And I and I thought that way of, at at P and G as well, with the CEO on the bottom, not actually on the top. So you've got this upside down pyramid. And across the top, you've got all the customers, you've got the sales organization, the people who interface with the customers, and they're the ones who need to be celebrated because they're calling on the customer every single day. And we as the leadership are on the bottom of that pyramid, and we've got to be constantly getting the resources, the help, the insight um, to that interface in order to better delight those customers. Yeah. Love that analogy, Bob. And it's interesting just thinking to the background of the Army and P&G, and one of the mantras I remember from my time at P&G was consumer as boss. Yes. And 
just re <coughs> you know, reading that case study and knowing what the hallmark of your time was at the VA. And like you said, it was broken and there were a lot of things that need to be fixed. And I just love knowing about you and your background, how you really took that consumer as boss and really turned the VA on its end and created my VA and really said, you know what? We're here for our service members. We're here for the men and women that have served our country and how do we serve them best? And I'm sure that was not an easy task, you know, given well, the history. It's a great point you're making, Dean, because um, this is axiomatic to me, but the larger the organization, the more there is a tendency to become a bureaucracy. Right. And I say that in a prejudicial way. What's, what's a bureaucracy? A bureaucracy that's more about itself than its customer. A bureaucracy that's, that's myopically focused on internal processes versus outcomes for customers. A bureaucracy where people pat each other on the back without regard to um, how well they're actually doing for their customers. So I got to the VA, I had a leadership meeting of my top 500 leaders uh, the organization was about 360,000 employees wow. strong. And of those top 500, 550 leaders, 95% were rated outstanding. They'd all rated each other outstanding. <laughs> Yet there's an organization uh -huh. called the uh, Partnership for Public Service that does a federal employee uh, survey every year. And our employees were rating us uh, 16 out of 17 government agencies. Ouch. So I stood up in front of this organization. I said, well, how can you all rate each other outstanding when the reality is our employees are rating us next to the bottom? So obviously we had a lot of work to do to turn that around um, because a bureaucracy loses sight of reality. And the leader's job is constantly to bring reality back to the organization and to transform the organization to fit that reality train the organization. For example, we were involved in customer service. We ran the largest medical system in the country, yet no one had been trained on human-centered design. So we actually uh, brought in IDO, uh, who you may remember mm -hmm. from your P&G days. Yeah. We also got the help of Phil Duncan and the design department at Procter & Gamble to train the VA in human-centered design. We journey mapped the veteran experience from the moment the uh, service member raises their hand and sworn in till we bury them in a VA cemetery. Um, we looked at all those touch points of the experience and we, we evaluated them, we rated them, and then we went to work re-engineering them to get the value up and to get the trust up. And we've gone from roughly 45, 50% trust of the VA when I started to now it's over 70, 72, 75%, um, and, the, and the progress is continuing. So um, I'm very happy about that, and I, I assume, I hope, I hear our veterans are very happy about that. And I have heard similar sentiments, how it doesn't happen overnight, but there have been some fundamental changes in the VA, and it's more importantly how they view you know, what they're doing and the impact they can have and really the focus on the service member. Exactly. It's, it's, it's the customer's um, opinion that matters the most, not the bureaucracies. But in a large organization, you can begin convincing yourself that it's the bureaucracy's point of view that counts. So the leader's job is to change the culture, get rid of all that bureaucratic um, 
cultural qualities and, and make it a uh, outward facing organization. You may have seen in the, in the case study that um, one of the things we, we did was we, we went from trying to be, trying to be a, uh, a rule-based uh, culture to a principle-based culture. It started with, um, we had a veteran pull up to one of our facilities in Spokane, Washington. He asked, he was obviously disabled. He asked for help getting into our facility and our receptionist said no, that she couldn't get out of her chair. She couldn't uh, help him, uh, which technically legally is true that um, she was supposed to stay at the desk. It's also true that in the medical um, community, if someone is injured, you don't you don't move them until trained help gets there. But at any rate, uh, we Sloan Gibson, the deputy secretary, sent out a letter to the entire organization and said, is this the way you would treat your um, your family member or is this the way you should treat a veteran? No, it's not. And uh, you shouldn't follow the rules. You should do what's right based on the situation for that veteran in need. Well, we then had another situation that we used to reinforce the culture we did want. It was in White River Junction, Vermont, where a nurse, um, make a long story short, got the police to knock down the door of a house for a veteran who wasn't showing up for care. And he was wedged between furniture and was near death and they saved his life. Wow. Now, the, the question for leadership is what would happen if they knocked down that door and found the veteran was safe? Uh, would you have the back of the employee who made the decision, took the initiative to knock down the door? And in great organizations, leaders have to have the backs of the employees when they take initiative and the initiative goes awry or goes afoul. It's a fundamental shift in that whole mindset that you helped to lead. Yeah, it's a change in culture, and culture is the most difficult thing for a leader to change. Yeah. But it's the thing that we have to work the most on. Well, Bob, it's, as I just think back on your career, West Point, the Army, Procter & Gamble, the VA, and I know you've got a lot going on right now. Where's your time and energy, and where's your focus today? Well, today I'm... Uh, um, I've invested in some companies. I'm involved in some companies. Um, I'm the chairman of the board of a company called RallyPoint, mm -hmm. uh, which is www.rallypoint.com, which is the largest online uh, network of, of veterans in the military community. Um, I recognized RallyPoint when I was at the VA, and I said, you know, this is something the military community needs to connect uh, those of us who have served and, and many of who haven't. Um, to get the things they need. And so I've, I've been working with Rally Point. I've invested in Rally Point. Um, Dave Gow, the chairman of the board, uh, the, I'm sorry, the CEO, I'm the chairman, uh, is a West Point graduate as well. Um, and so we're doing what we can. And, and right now we're involved in uh, doing some things to help uh, prevent and uh, reduce uh, suicide. And that's uh, very, very important to me. I'm uh, also on the board of our alma mater at West Point, uh, which is a nonprofit. Uh, I'm on the board of the Partnership for Public Service, which is trying to encourage young people to join public service, uh, which I think is incredibly important. Those are, again, nonprofits. Yeah. And then for profit, I'm on the board of a company called Quotient, which is a, a big data company, and that takes me to Silicon Valley periodically, and I enjoy that enjoy learning about the new innovation and hopefully contributing 
and uh, on the board of a company called Audia in uh, in Pittsburgh, which is a, a great organization um, uh, in the plastics industry. So staying busy, trying to give back, uh, not losing my focus on um, on on veterans. In fact, uh, one I didn't mention is the McCormick Research Institute here in Orlando, where I'm working with them to um, try to validate equine therapy as treatment for post-traumatic stress. So trying to trying to play a role, still trying to help veterans in the military community. Well, wow, Bob, and what are you doing with your free time? Because you don't have any free time. Well, I don't want to have any free time. I mean, I, I uh-huh. my purpose in life has always been to serve others and uh, while I enjoy the occasional game of golf, and I live in a great golf community here in Alworth, um, I just I can't uh, I can't play golf every day or every other day. Yeah. I play maybe once every three weeks. Yeah, and I did not know the extent of what you have going on, but you know the one part I know about you, you are not the retiring type. You're going to stay busy. You're going to stay active and continue to want to make a difference. Well, I do want to make a difference. I, I'm, I, I don't think my last chapter has been written yet, and I'm excited to see uh, what God has in store for me. I, I, you know, none of the chapters I would have predicted. I mean, when I went to West Point, I would have never thought that was preparing me to work at Procter & Gamble in the Philippines. When I was in the ASIC and Airborne Division, none of that would have, you know, wouldn't have crossed my mind to join government and be the Secretary of Veterans Affairs. When I joined Procter & Gamble, the same thing. I didn't predict living half of my career outside the U.S. and the importance of that. So you never know. You never right. know what the good Lord has in store. You just have to be ready. And I think um, life is about layering these different experiences. The threat of continuity through those experiences is trying to serve others. Mm-hmm. And you never know what experience will come next. No doubt about it, Bob. And I did have one last question that I like to ask our guests. And we are now two and a half years into our startup journey with Authentically American. And much of the lessons learned that I picked up from you are starting to be interwoven into who we are in our fabric. But I always like to ask our guests, Bob, what does it mean to you to be Authentically American? Well, this is, this is the greatest country in the world. Uh, you and I both signed up to put our lives in danger for this country, and I think it's because of what we believe in in this country. This is a this is a country of immigrants. Uh, my my grandfather, uh, maternal grandfather, came through Ellis Island. Uh, both my maternal grandfather and grandmother came from Greece. Um, my paternal grandparents uh, came from. Uh, you know, the European uh, countries came through the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Um, my grandparents uh, had it much harder than I did. My, gr- my parents did as well. Every generation uh, builds on the generation that comes before it. We all stand on the shoulders of the giants who came before us. It's a country rooted in values. Uh, the values um, you know, I, when I would go to the State of the Union address as a Secretary of the Department of Veterans Affairs, and I'd look up above the president, and I'd see uh, above there, in God we trust. Yeah. Uh, we're a country of values. And, um, you know, it's much easier in a way getting yourself excited about defending a country of values rather than uh, thinking that you're defending palaces of a king or you're defending uh, some kind of uh, system which is inappropriate or obtuse. Um, 
we're we're all about values. We're about values, and and we're about sustaining those values. We are the bright light on the hill, and we have to continue to be that. Certainly, there are going to be uh, ups and downs. Uh, there are going to be times where we're not doing the best we can to put those values forward. But um, I believe in an interconnected world. I've seen an interconnected oh, yeah. world. I was the chairman of the U.S.-China Business Council. Um, and I don't care how much you try to tear apart this world. It's not going to happen. We're in an interconnected world. And uh, if we want to accomplish great things, we have to do them together. That's why my wife and I endowed the Conference for Leaders of Character at West Point. We bring 80 students from around the world. We have them work together. We send them back out to solve the naughty problems of the world. Uh, we cannot isolate ourselves, nor should we. No. Uh, we should be the beacon on the hill. And love the reinforcement of values, Bob, because that's what our country was founded on. You know, God-fearing people and God we trust. Two of the things that I think are a hallmark of this country when it talks about we the people. I mean, just a reinforcement, and you've lived that with the investment of people you've made throughout your career. And the other thing is, you know, the Constitution. You know, when you and I both you know, took the oath, talks about to serve and protect and defend the Constitution, something greater than any one person, any one being. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Well, Bob. Exactly. And I, I love your point about the people. I mean, uh, you know, Abraham Lincoln is a is a um, uh, an idol for us all. And uh, I spent a lot of time when I was in D.C. going up to the Lincoln Memorial. On the left-hand side, you've got the, the Gettysburg Address. On the right-hand side, the second inaugural address. And it was the second inaugural address that had so many of these collection of words. Uh, but we're a government of the people, by the people, for the people. And as he said in that second inaugural address, we have to care for those who have borne the battle, their widows and their orphans. As you and I know from our military experience, and as is pounded into you in ranger school, we do not only not leave a person behind, we don't leave a body behind. There aren't many armies in the world that don't leave a body behind, but it shows how we care about each other. And um, that's what we have to do. We have to care for each other, and our government has to play a role in that. And if it doesn't play the right role, we vote it out of office. No doubt. Well, Bob, I know even more so now how much you have going on, and I'm even more appreciative of the time you've invested here, and I am honored to call you a friend, and I am excited to have an opportunity to share your inspiring stories with everybody. And, you know, we don't have an opportunity to connect as much as we used to, but I also consider you a role model for me. So, again, thank you. Well, thank you, Dean. You humble me, but congratulations again on what you're doing with Authentically American, and I wish you every success. and. Uh, best wishes to you, your family, and, and all of God's blessings. Likewise to you and your family, Bob. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dean. You've been listening to the Authentically American podcast. You can follow Authentically American on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and find all our episodes at authenticallyamerican.us forward slash podcast. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you.